This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of sports talk with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad? Tune in to the new Tom Bernard Show podcast Monday through Friday as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard Show app wherever you get your podcasts or visit TomBernardShow.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation. These two guys have Minnesota sports flowing in their veins. Mackie and Judd on Score North and scorenorth.com. Six and a half, seven three-pointers last year. Like, that is extremely high for a big man. So, although he's seven foot, doesn't make him a big. Like, he loves to playing around uh, uh, around out on the perimeter. And when I watch him switch one through five, he's not bad at moving those puppies. I actually love this addition. I actually think that they're trying to do it their way, and they're trying to go back to the traditional too big, and I think it's okay because eventually it's going to move back in that direction. We have seen it time and time again. That's right. There you go. Get, yeah. get it out. Get the flag here. I oh, can't. Right. I'm the only one with You're the flag. You're the only one with the howl towel. Shoes off. Yeah, there it is. Oh. Come on. Oh. Come on. Uh, get that get slipper off. Oh, oh, I like that oh, slipper. Wow. Oh, that's, that's a nice slipper. <laughs> that's a nice that's a slipper quality slipper. Oh, I love slippers. Slipper so comfortable. So mm, very comfortable. Very. You're not a slipper guy? hate slippers. What do you What do you just wear, socks, or you go I, barefoot? Uh, socks or barefoot. I, I don't like... Um, I hate barefoot. Should your feet get cold? No. Winter in Minnesota? Barefoot, no. unnecessary. No, despite my tiny little frame, I run insanely hot. I don't really understand why. Yeah, but slippers should I have make no that. body fat on me. I'm almost 30 years old, but I run incredibly hot, so I, I don't like extra warmth. Slippers are that's your fantastic on my body. I would have pegged you for a cold guy. I know. Not gonna lie, most people do, and it, I would have pegged you yeah. for nope. you know, little, being a little chilly. No, nope. mm. barefoot's a big mistake, folks. Big mistake. Glass shards of glass, things that you can step on that penetrate your foot. Barefoot, ne- don't do it. Or you Dawn can loves, clean your floor. Don loves. Look, there's just shards of glass know, in your house. Just, you just, never know where there might be some type of thing that that can um, um, a burning charcoal bed. You, you never foot. know when you're. You never know. You, you step outside, <laughs> slipper, you're covered. Barefoot, you're screwed. Life advice from Judd Zolgad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, boys, it is a glorious Tuesday here because we get to talk once again about Rudy Gobert in a Timberwolves uniform. For the third time since Friday. So Dex has been on vacation uh, this weekend. You were part of our emergency episode. Then Judd and I came back yesterday and said, all right, it's been about 72 hours. Mm -hmm. We've had some time to digest this. And we both agreed after 72 hours away, we love this trade even more than three days ago, despite guys like Bill Simmons, some of the national media, Zach Lowe, Bill Simmons, Ryan Russillo, just hammering the wolves for this trade. But uh, let's let's dive in even more. I think we should start with Declan because... Good. For this statements, usually statements Monday, it's a statements Tuesday here on the show. Um, I have plenty more takes. I'm sure Judd does too, but we've already takes. given like two hours of takes on this trade across <laughs> two podcasts. So let's lead off with Declan sure. here on this statements Tuesday. Uh, my, my statement's pretty simple. It's what what are we so worried about? What what are we so worried about with this trade? Full disclosure. Full disclosure. All right. I. I love the Twins, I love the Vikings, I love the Wild. I have put the Wolves fourth on my pecking order of things that I've been mostly interested from the Minnesota sports scene in in my lifetime. Now, that's mostly because they traded away the superstar when I was like 10, 11 years old, and I remember the run of the Western Conference Finals. I even remember them getting beaten the first round numerous times. 
But for for all the wrong reasons, or all the right reasons, I should say, I kind of put the Wolves on the back burner as I went into my teenage and high school years because they weren't they, they just weren't that interesting to me. But now they're starting to turn a corner a little bit. Anthony Edwards is exciting. They make a little nice run and give the Grizzlies a run for their money. And this is a franchise that hasn't won a playoff series in 20 years. They made the playoffs twice, right, in the last 20 years. And they pushed all of their chips in and now have one of the best starting fives in the NBA. I, I, I don't understand Preach. what the fear mongering is. What is the worst case scenario with this trade? The worst case scenario is they're still the Timberwolves that they're just middling and never flirting with being a contender. Literally, look at the trade. And what, what is so scary? What could happen? We gave up the sixth grader that's an AAU star right now? Like, who who cares about the 2029 pick? Um, I, I just don't understand what the big fear is. And, yes, there's pundits that have ripped this trade. My guy Nick Wright, who I love on Fox Sports, and, and some people kind of label him as the hot take artist. In fact, he, he did a great dive with this on Lebetard like a month ago where he talks about giving his takes and whatnot. And he went on a whole rant. And it's a little long, but it's worth playing. And he called it the most egregious overpay in NBA history. Mm. Here's Nick Wright (laughs) on this trade. But you know how you know the Jazz, the Timberwolves overpaid? The fact that the Jazz were able to squeeze that 2026 pick swap out of them. I, I, I have respect for the people now running the Timberwolves. But did they think the Jazz were going to walk away from the deal if they wouldn't give them that swap? It's like, all right, we'll give you four firsts, four players. But I don't want to give you the swap. And Ainge was like, you got to include the swap or I'm out of here. Not doing it. They're like, okay, give them the swap. Like, what? You know how I also know that this was an overpay? Let me show you a headline and a subheadline from an article that doesn't even have a listed offer. Minnesota sends a steep package, including five players and five picks. That is from the NBA's official website. <laughs> so the league, in an unauthored article, just for the like the league, the, the Adam Silver's league office is like, we got to write this up. How do we describe it? Can we call it the most egregious overpay in NBA history? Eh, we are NBA.com. What about a steep package? <laughs> Oh, so so at so we got so Nick Wright thinks it's an absurd deal. Yep. Bill Simmons thinks it's an absurd deal. Ryan Rosillo, Zach Lowe, uh, Zach Lowe thinks it's a bad deal. So like, um, you know, all, all these prominent NBA national talking heads all think it's a bad deal. Um, I don't know, Joe. What do you make of the national backlash here? I think it's the. The simplest way to go about trying to break down a trade, and keep in mind, too, we are right now in prime time moves, right? Like, we are right now. So there's a lot of uh, basketball, so to speak, in the air, potentially. I think the easiest way to break down this trade is to look at the amount that the Wolves sent to the Jazz and say, oh, whoa, 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 overpay, terrible overpay. I think what it is is it's a serious, it's a serious disinterest in trying to look at what this trade means especially from the wolves end right because like if you were to to break it down like perk did you know to me the cat thing is the biggest thing here it's how does this impact your star player and and as far as i can tell the thought process will be positively it should help him quite a bit it certainly challenges him to get the most from himself which i think is a smart move i think it's laziness I just think it's so simple to look at the steep price that the Wolves paid and basically say, okay, 
I need a take here. Preferably a hot take. And so, no, but that's my, that's my, my opinion is that it's not being really broken down. It's being looked at and it's, oh my God, a guy who's, who is in the eyes of the league aging and it's one player for all of this. What a stupid trade. That's the easy hot take. Well, okay. A couple things. People act like the Wolves have 10 options of what they can do and add to this team. Well, they already explored a few of them. They tried to get DeJounte Murray from San Antonio. And I don't know why those talks broke down, or maybe maybe the Wolves they preferred this decided one. that Gobert was going to be yeah. yeah a better and and Gobert is a better player than and more impactful player than Dejounte Murray. But so the people that are saying the Wolves overpaid, okay, well, was there an option? Maybe Nick Wright is correct. Maybe maybe they could have sharpened the pencil more with Danny Ainge and said, all right, for, we're not going to do the pick swap, which is kind of hilarious that. He's right about that. That's pretty funny. Of all the things they're giving up, and then like, oh, and also we're gonna yeah. we're gonna swap picks if it's advantageous for uh, for the, for the Jazz in 2026. But if the Wolves came back and said, "Listen, we got to draw the line somewhere. We're not going to give you the 2029 pick, and we're not going to give you Balmaro," uh-huh. would the Jazz have balked at the trade? And so, if the answer is yeah, the Jazz would have balked at that, and they had three other deals lined up, then okay, well. You had you gave up what you had to give up, mm-hmm. but show me the other four trades the Wolves had on the table that bring in an impactful player like Rudy Gobert, who is without hyperbole one of the greatest defensive players the league has ever seen. And I think that is part of the reason why people are having a hard time wrapping their brains around. Like even even these guys who watch basketball on a nightly basis, these talking heads like Bill Simmons, Nick Wright. When you watch Rudy Gobert play, even when you watch him for the thirty five minutes he's out there. The impact that he has doesn't show up as obviously in a box score as it does for a Kevin Durant or a James Harden or some of these more offensive-centric players. Mm-hmm. Carl Anthony Towns, even, as a seven-footer that's shooting three-pointers from five feet beyond the arc. like You can see that, and you can see it in a box score. Rudy Gobert's impact is as boring as a great defensive tackle in the NFL. They're just kind of sitting in the middle, and they're not really getting sacks. They're not really, you know, they're not leading the team in tackles or anything like that. They're not throwing touchdown passes, but they are jacking up the opposing team's run game, right? Pat Williams, for the three years the Vikings held opponents to like 75 yards per game on the ground. Historically, that's what Rudy Gobert is. When a guard dribbles into the paint and sees a seven foot nine wingspan and then says, uh oh, and then aborts mission, and now the shot clock's down to five, he doesn't get a block, right. he doesn't get a steal, right. it's not a three pointer made. But it's a it's a possession blown sky high because he exists. The value of Rudy Gobert is that he exists <laughs> mm-hmm. in the paint, mm-hmm. and so I don't. I, I almost feel like these people that are like they're not they're not watching him and they're not understanding the impact that he has because it's not as obvious as offensive players. They're looking purely at one thing: the exchange. That's the only thing. Okay, and, so let's and, say okay, cool. The Wolves get to keep their 2029 pick. Does that make everyone feel better? Oh, now it's good value. But got to, but, Who cares? Right, right. But you're 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 talking about this as a Wolves fan and a person who covers the team and and has spent how many hours since Friday thinking about this? Every they, hour, actually. They are. Yeah. I've not slept. Yeah. They are the McDonald's of takes. They they got to <laughs> sling them out, baby. Like they've moved on. So like they're slinging takes. Okay, take here, it. take there. They don't have time to sit down and think. Oh, okay. I I. I get this completely. Because if you get it completely, right or wrong, 
you have a far better understanding of what Conley is trying to do here and Fitch. And what they're trying to do is also unlock potential star or not potential. That's the wrong word. What they're trying to do is unlock star players to make them even better, which I which I like. But they're not looking at that. They are they are Burger King man. They are putting yeah. burgers out there and fries, and they got to go and, go go drive and up to window. respond back to Burger King for a second. Okay, so you 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 hate the Rudy Gobert trade because it was too much to give up. That's the type of deal that you would make for a Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, show me where the Timberwolves were close to trading for Kevin Durant in the last seventy two hours. Was that an option for them? Well, Is that a thing like? Because Kevin Durant, I'm assuming, gets some sort of say in where he goes next, or he could just put up a stink like he's doing right now with Brooklyn, right? Yep. So, I'm sorry, did did the Wolves have door number one, Rudy Gobert, uh, door what? number two, Kevin Durant, and door number three, some other superstar, and they were just choosing those three? No! <laughs> I got a statement off that. Play the sounder, because you're right, and here's why. The deal is actually favorable. Oh, my God. What did he just say? Did he just say that trade might be he is? Hot take. This is the Herschel Walker trade. Judd has to be wrong. Eh. Why is Judd defending eh. the team? Is Judd a homer now? No, here's why. <laughs> to answer Phil, epic proportions yeah. To answer Phil's question, the Wolves did call on KD. And you know what the Nets said? Cool. Let's talk. Let's talk about your star players. We want Ant. Cat. We want Jaden. What about Cat? Exactly right. Okay? So, keep in mind. I believe that the tone of this show is entirely different if there are, let's say, two draft picks that went to the Jazz and Jaden McDaniels, which is what they wanted. The Wolves said, you Mm got to come off that. Like, we're not doing that. So, and I think that if they had included Jaden and, let's say, two draft picks and and then basically the rest of the crew that got uh, thrown in, which I don't really care about that much, I think the tone of this show is entirely different because now you've traded a good young piece. You've traded a Levine-like piece, which, by the way, came back to bite you in the ass. So I would actually argue, because I don't think any one of those players that you dealt is like a non, oh my God, I can't believe that, right? Now, the draft picks could hurt, but as we've all talked about, if the Wolves achieve what they want, those draft picks are going to drop down into the 20s. So I would actually make a case that Tim Conley and This is why I think the Wolves have been privately so pleased thus far. Tim Conley actually got the Jazz to the point he wanted because they started with McDaniels. And KD, you would have had to give up assets that you love to get KD. And I agree, I'm not not going to uh, potentially weaken my team in some ways by getting a player just so I can have a different player. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have so many more thoughts on this, but real quick, let's let's shout out. Uh, some people ask us, you know, what's the best way that we can help you guys as you build Score North and Mackie and Judd? And quite simply, the answer is listen or watch as often as you can and support our partners is the second thing you can do. And Spiral Light Candles is back here, Judd, for the summer. That's exactly right. And welcome back. And I want to talk right now about winning. It's what teams are trying to do, right? It's, okay, it's what okay, the Wolves are okay, trying to do. Yeah. I want to talk okay, about, yeah. because it's all about winning, right? And I want to talk about a very important thing in your house, a winning scent. 
That's right, a winning scent. Now, I didn't used to be a scent guy. Full disclosure, Judd was not a, oh, a we know. scent yeah. guy until, you know what? We're in Spiral, different studios for a reason. Spiralite showed up at my house, and Dawn's like, these they, things they don't replace showers, just yeah. so you are know. fantastic. Yeah. Stop with this, because the candles are fantastic. And Dawn said, these things are great. In fact, she started to get more and more, and I said, oh my God, our house smells so good. Our house smells fantastic. Not to mention the fact that they're very cool. It is a perfect gift. In fact, I would submit that it is that it is a gift right now that if you start to um, get get some delivered to your your house which is as simple as going to spiralightcandles.com that you could you know you're going to be watching football right all fall long and uh, yeah you know per- perhaps the gal is going to say I, do you really have to watch that much Football, well, imagine, imagine making your house a better place right now. Imagine currying favor. Spiral light candles will do that. These things are absolutely fantastic. Spirallightcandles.com. Check them out and you will see. Also, a shout out to Federated Insurance. They've been partners with the Timberwolves through a lot of thick and thin over the years and uh, with us too here at Score North. And they partner with businesses for over 100 years to help maximize the success of your business. Also, Coming up later this month is the Federated Challenge, which helps raise money, $44 million since 2005, for Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is one of the uh, the best mentoring organizations. You're going to find one-to-one relationships with children facing adversity. If you want to find out more about how you can become a big or just more about what um, Big Brothers and Big Sisters and Federated can do for the community, federatedchallenge.org. That's federatedchallenge.org. Okay. People are disrespecting Rudy Gobert's offensive impact. That's right. I said offensive impact. That's the biggest criticism I've heard is, well, in addition to defensively, he got played off the court against the Clippers a couple years ago and against the Mavericks this year. You and I did a deep dive on that on our uh, Monday episode, so check that out. But on the offensive side of the ball, well, you know, he's a, you don't have to guard him. He's just kind of a statue, and he doesn't really have any discernible skills. He doesn't shoot, really. Let me give you a stat. Forget about the aesthetics. Forget about the fact that he's not going to do like a you know crossover step back three like maybe Carl Anthony Towns has baked into his game. Sure. Rudy Gobert scores 16 points per game on eight shot attempts per game. He does not shoot three-pointers. So do the math on that again. He does not shoot three-pointers. He scores 16 points a game on eight shot attempts Mm -hmm. per game. That is bonkers efficiency. Mm -hmm. So now is he, is he going one-on-one in isolation from the wing and, you know, dribble drive pass? No, it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's uh, pick and rolls where he's crashing the hoop, catching lobs, cleaning up the glass on the offensive side. Mm -hmm. But no matter how you stack it. Okay. The Utah Jazz get to start with 15 points per game on eight shot attempts. The average team in the NBA shoots the ball about 90 times in a game. And so now for the other 82 shots, you only have to score 100 points on 82 shots to be one of the highest scoring teams in the NBA because you have Rudy Gobert doing all of this stuff inside. The Jazz last year, I guess I should have posed this maybe as a question for you, as a trivia question, but I'll just give you the answer. The Jazz were the highest-scoring offensive team in the NBA last year per 100 possessions. Not because Gobert was holding them back, but because he was giving you 15 points on eight shot attempts, 16 points on eight shot attempts to start the game, basically. 
So I think if you if you look at it in the right way, he's an offensive asset. The way that he can put shots back and and score with so few shots. Oh, I think people are kind of disrespecting him a little bit. Wave the towel. Wave the damn towel again. Okay. Just do it. Wave the towel. Take the shoe off. You know what? Damn it. The Timberwolves are fun to talk about. <laughs> Shoes are off. And they might be damn good. You don't know. He's a... I, yeah. He, is, he, he led the NBA in effective field goal percentage. And in, I mean, he literally makes like 70% of his yeah. shots. Because he's not taking dumb, wasted shots. And by the way... Yeah. By the way, way. Okay. And another thing. These people, like... Were you were you looking to add? So you, you're keeping D'Lo here. And by the way, by the way, D'Lo as a pick and roll ball handler right. with both Cat and Rudy Gobert as very different options um, as the pick men. Right. Very dangerous. There's there's going to be an elevation of D'Lo's pick and roll game here if they if they turn to that uh, to that set. But you got D'Lo taking sixteen to twenty shots. You got Cat taking eighteen twenty shots. Yeah, you, you, you want. And, did people want to trade for a guy that shoots 20 times? No, I'll, I'll take the guy that's ridiculous defensively, shoots about eight times, and scores 16 points on those eight shots. Thank you very much. And improves the team around him. Or players, right? He's going to improve Cat. D'Lo. I mean, he his presence is going to, to allow McDaniels Pominville, to play more. To McLaughlin. That's the other thing that people are, we're not talking enough, and we, we touched on, on this on our, uh, our on our podcast Monday, but I think another really key thing is the amount of player, or the young players this now allows to play because you cleared your roster out mm-hmm. of some veterans. Noel, McDaniels. I mean, Jaden McDaniels deserves this chance. Mm-hmm. And he might and be Jalen Noel and, deserves this yeah, chance. Noel Absolutely. And they both might be damn good. I think McDaniels is, go- is going to be spectacular. Like, I yeah. think he's going to I mean, be a really, really good player. Jalen Noel was just blocked on the depth chart, really. Yeah. Like, he's, whenever he got out there, for the most part, he was a scoring spark, and he can, he can run the offense. He can also just sort of get his own shot, get to the rim, shoot three-pointers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's... It's a, it's a little bit like when the Twins traded AJ Pruszynski, and then oh, Joe, now Joe Mauer gets it. There's a, oh, there's a guy to kind of step in here and Bauer. take some minutes. Who I don't know that, that Noel is going to be a borderline Hall of Famer, but you're giving a talented guys mm-hmm. extra minutes for sure. That's okay. I'm right, next statement. Uh, hammer the money line. My statement is hammer <laughs> the money line. So uh, from FanDuel, they wrote this up over the weekend. So the the Wolves enter July one as a big long shot, plus eleven thousand to win the NBA title. But after landing Rudy Gobert, they have climbed up to plus 3,600, which is the 12th best odds in the league to win the NBA title. So it's a little low to me. It probably is still low. That's why. It's still disrespect to me. That's why you put 100 bucks on it now with all all the Wolves truthers out there. You can have Mm. a humongous payday, a nice little bonus in your bank account come June, you know, mid June when the Warriors are, or when the Wolves beat the Warriors on the Western Conference Finals and they get to the NBA championship. Hammer. Your money line here. Put your money where your mouth is. I don't under. I just don't get why. To back to the original point here, I just don't understand why we're so afraid of what could happen to this trade. We just laid out two why two young players like Jalen Noel and Jaden McDaniels now are probably going to thrive. Malik Beasley's not going to be chucking up just twelve shots and and missing nine of them. This is a great trade for the Wolves. It puts them into the conversation as Western Conference contenders. Something that really hasn't been said much in my entire lifetime. So hammer the money line. 
And let's see what this trade does, because I think it's going to work out for the Wolves. We are so scarred. That's our problem. We are so scarred. Everything... I can't tell if it's, the, if it's the same people, but like, the Twins never make any big moves. Right. You can't have it both ways. And then the That's Timberwolves exactly do, and it's I... like, well, I feel like they ah, overpaid. Well, I mean, and it's one thing to it's one thing to have um, have discussions, which we have certainly done, right, about that the Cousins thing didn't work out as planned or ha- has not to date. But I, but we've never gone back and said, well, you know what? In retrospect, on that day, we hated that move. Like, if you're going to make a splash, I'm going to give you credit, Un- unless yeah. you do something that's just so out stupid. But I mean, if you are going to try to improve your team. If you're going to to say, you know what, we're not good enough. We're going to make a splash move. Why would we be like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Don't know. What are you doing? I really, I mean, those draft picks are going to, that's what I don't get. Like, and and I'm panic. I'm I'm the guy on this show who is as negative as anybody. I'll say this looks stupid. And in retrospect, there are things that don't go well, but I'm all for fun. Here's another thing on the okay. What if this thing goes wrong front? What if what what does it look like if this thing goes wrong? Well, I still think they're a playoff team. If it because to me, if it goes wrong, it's more of a seven game series you get yourself into against a team that can play small ball like the Clippers did, the Mavericks, and there's a lot of them. I mean, the Warriors can play small ball, so there are. I don't mean to, and we dove into a lot of these too on yesterday's episode. But so there are definitely questions, and they will be answered. And those questions, those questions are going to pile up in the right seven-game series. But let's say uh, you make the playoffs and you get bounced in the first round a couple times or the second round or whatever. You just don't do as much in the four-year window of Gobert's contract as you wanted to. Guess how old Anthony Edwards is going to be in four years from now? 25. Yeah, he's a kid still. Yeah. He'll be entering the prime of his NBA career Uh under a max contract because he's going to sign a max contract that kicks in like two years from now. Yep. So he's when the Gobert thing fades out, which is the Gobert contract is more attached to the to cat's age window than ant's age window because there's a 10-year gap between gobert and ant but if it doesn't work that well you still get anthony edwards emerging into his prime jade mcdaniels emerging into his prime in four years and cat at the age of 30 on a super max contract so i'm with dex off the top of the show what is what are people scared of it's i'm telling what is your fear but the twins like old ortiz and the walker trade and 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 they passed on Steph Curry. Something's going to go wrong. That's where that's what our fear is. Um, okay, my next statement is is off of these points. Get ready for splash, ladies and gentlemen. The Minnesota Timberwolves. These are no. These are not at this point, despite the fact that he still owns this team. Glenn Taylor's Wolves. Okay, the Glenn Taylor years, as far as the. Bad moves, bad hires, all of that. And a real, for the most part, a real lack of splash. Those days are now gone. Because because A-Rod and Lori are here to fry some big fish. And they ain't going to just take sitting back and saying, oh, that's too bad that we're bad, or that's too bad that our team sucks. These guys are going to make moves, I believe within three years, they will be willing to pay into into or plan to pay into the luxury tax, which is a huge thing because that was a thing I think Glenn did like once or twice. But the point is, get ready for Splash. This is not the last one, too. 
Like, I don't know when the next one is, but these guys are going to look to make this, if they can, a destination type of team. Um, Things will change. I think at this point in time, it's going to change to be much more fun. I don't know if a championship is in the cards, but I do know this. These guys are going to want to have an atmosphere that, that is probably unlike anything the majority of Wolves fans have ever seen. Yeah, they they aren't A Rod and Laurie aren't saddled with decades of just failure and the malaise that has just hovered over this franchise. Mm-hmm. They're coming from their own unique backgrounds of success, right? Alex Rodriguez, I get that he was enhanced by some uh, needles here and there, <laughs> but Alex Rodriguez is one of the greatest baseball players of all time on the greatest franchise of all time, the Yankees, and he won a World Series. And Mark Laurie is one of the great businessmen of the last 20 or 30 years. He's He has sold multiple companies for billions of dollars to Amazon and Walmart. And he's got more companies that he's spinning off right now. And he doesn't, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't live in Mankato, in a small town, bumpkin sort of he's lifestyle Cuban, like Glenn Taylor does. Yeah, they are much more yeah. Mark Cuban, Shark Tank type guys. And uh, they look at this as a huge opportunity to... Do something special. They aren't. They aren't. They don't have these limiting beliefs and this sort of scarcity mindset that a lot of us have as Minnesota sports fans and followers and media too. Over the last thirty years, I mean, I get it. I get the instinct of you're always kind of watching out for what bad thing could happen, or you're instead of this trade coming in and you thinking best case scenario, which is you just you have two of the most uniquely skilled big men that complement each other perfectly. How are they going to impose that on other teams? You're thinking, well, how are other teams going to impose their small ball lineups on the West? It's like, well, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And I get that most people who've been following Minnesota sports haven't seen anything from the men's teams near a championship in three-plus decades. Uh, but these guys don't come in with that mindset. Right. And, and the Vikings screw up at times, but since they were bought by the Wilfs, they do make splashes. And, and like, that's the thing is... The Vikings just are now at, at a point where our discussions are, it's time to go. It's time to win a Super Bowl. It's right. The Wolves aren't there yet, but I think that the goal is at some point here within the next, I don't know, few years that that becomes the next goal. Like right now, if I say, if I say Timberwolves championship, it's really hard to get the old brain around that one. Like it's still difficult. But that's the goal, and the goal is to have a team, and the Vikings do this, that aim big and make splash moves. And that's what's fun about sports. Yeah. I have a lot more, I feel like, but I don't know. There's there, there's some great Go Bear Cat comparisons that people you are throwing out. want to give us out. one more? I'll give you this one. Maybe we can talk about it more in depth. I'll give you a quick one here. Sure. My last, my last statement for you. We'll, we'll talk some twins, too. My favorite Gobert cat comparison to this point that I've seen is the 2010-11 Dallas Mavericks that paired six foot eleven, seven foot Dirk Nowitzki, legendary big man shooter. Right, he's more of a more of a perimeter style big man with Tyson Chandler, who I think was one of the most underrated rebounders and rim protectors. I mean, he bounced around a lot of teams. He was deemed a bust because he was drafted by the Bulls and the post-Michael Jordan era, but then he actually became like Defensive Player of the Year. He had a 20-year NBA career, made almost $200 million. And for that season, those guys paired perfectly together, complementary skill sets, 
they beat the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals in six games. And then the next year, Tyson Chandler signed a big contract with the Knicks and became Defensive Player of the Year. So that's 10 years ago, and I think it's a, it's a good example of how two guys who are seven feet tall can complement each other skill set-wise. I think what I would worry about is that 10 years ago, those guys didn't have to worry nearly as much about chasing small ball lineups and three-point shooters on the perimeter like today's NBA. Mm-hmm. In fact, the average team 10 years ago took 18 threes per game. Now the average team takes 35 threes per game. So that number has doubled. Uh, so, and the same, I've heard the Tim Duncan, David Robinson thing from 25 years ago. That's an even different NBA where teams were taking like 10 threes per game. So I like the Dirk and Tyson Chandler comparison. I do wonder, okay, if you put those guys out there for having to chase 35 threes around 40 sometimes, how would that pairing hold up? How often could they be on the court at the same time? Um, but you, know, you also get to impose your size and will on opposing teams, which let's not forget, it's not all about reacting to other teams. It's what, what are you doing to other right. teams that they have to react to because you're right. Because the smallest guy in your starting lineup is D'Lo at six foot four. No. Yeah. So what, what's the what's the fine line here then? Be, because you definitely want to be uh, far more aggressive, I think, and, and physical than the Wolves were against the Grizzlies in the first round. But yet, to your point, there are teams that can go small. Like, like what's the mm-hmm. what's the trade off there? What what's because like, look, if the Wolves have, had had Gobert against the Grizzlies. I think that they win that series probably in like five or six games. I agree. Um, Against that team, I agree. Exactly yes. right. So, so when teams can or do go small, Phil, what what do you what will Chris Finch need to do to counter that? Because you can't well, just say, "Well, we're screwed now." Yeah. the The good news is those guys aren't. If they're both going to play thirty five minutes, they're not required to play all thirty five minutes together. Okay. Right? They can. They, you know, they you can space those guys out if you need to. Um, offensively, Cat provides a ton of mismatches in your favor. So you you might take leads during the you know middle portion of the game that are insurmountable at the end because of the work that you've done to get to that point. What do the Wolves do if faced with a similar situation that Utah was faced with in the second half of Game Six against the Clippers two years ago, or uh, I think it was Game Six against the Mavericks this year, where they pull their big man off the court and they put a shooting guard in there, and now they're playing five out. Part of the answer is perimeter defense, not Rudy Gobert. You know, John, you and I talked about this yesterday, but look at those Jazz lineups, the other four guys oftentimes on the court. Mike Conley, six foot one, not a great defensive player. Donovan Mitchell, yep. six foot one, not a great defensive player. Bogdanovich, you know, a lot of guys who are sniper three point shooters, but they're not going to stand in the way of, you know, an aggressive ball handler on the perimeter. And then, okay, if you're playing five out and the perimeter defense up top breaks down. Now Gobert has to figure out, okay, do I have to jump into the paint and then leave my guy in the corner? So the hope is that the Timberwolves, with Jade McDaniels getting another year older, and Anthony Edwards, we've seen him play clamps defense when he wants to. He'll get another year older. Um, the guy they brought in from Memphis. Um, Kyle Anderson. Kyle Anderson is a is a really good perimeter defender. So they might have just a better set of players to keep the perimeter more intact than Utah did the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then that will make Rudy Gobert's job a lot easier and Carl Anthony Towns too. When you know, I think the biggest question though is if those guys have to defend five out small ball lineups, what does that look like? Do you pull one of them off the court? And that's going to be up to Chris Finch. 
But then people are forgetting all the other benefits that they're going to have the rest of the game and the size and the rebounding and the block shots and stuff. Somebody did a great YouTube video, and I posted this on Twitter a couple days ago, explaining the math. Uh, like People get so obsessed with three-point defense. And the Clippers in that famous game, game six two years ago, when they, they had like a 34-point turnaround in the second half. It might have been more than that. The Clippers went 14 of 19 from three-point range. So, yeah, like they, the five-out lineup gave them a lot more open looks, but how often are they going to go 14 of 19? So it, it just it magnified it by them. What if they would have gone, you know, 8 of 18 or 8 of 19, which right. is still a good percentage? We're not talking about this because they probably lose the game. So um, the video that I that I saw was a mathematical breakdown of, okay, if you give a team 100 possessions at the rim and 100 possessions from three based on the average percentage of makes in both spots, the rim protection is much more critical to slowing down opposing teams than perimeter defense. Both are important, but but clamping down the rim is more important. And then there's going to be nights sometimes where teams get hot. It's today's NBA, and you you know you get run out of the gym in the third or fourth quarter. Right. So no, there's so much more to dive into with that. I know that um, our guy Kyle Kyle Tige has some thoughts on flagrant howls this week too. So oh. be fun. Has Jim Peterson tweeted anything out? Have we seen Patrick talked to him. He, he's quoted what's, at the end of Patrick's say? column that Patrick wrote for Saturday for the Star Tribune. Is he, he pumped? Uh, I, I think his his quote was his quote when asked about how this was going to work with Gobert introduced to, to the mix was in Chris Finch I trust. Okay. His feeling is that Finchy ha- has the ability to come up with ways to make things work that we might not be thinking of. Finchy. Yeah. Oh, Finchy well, I mean, it, Fincherson. Yeah, that's that's a key part of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, boys. Well, that's the Rudy Gobert. This is great. You know what? Let's get I'm, it. I am all in. This is fantastic. Timberwolves made a, a big move. Blast. I'll take yep. it. Uh, all right. Statements continue here. I also have a pecking order for you guys as we sort of blend our usual Monday and and Tuesday shows together. But the Minnesota Twins had a fun game yesterday Hmm. against the White Sox. We're trying to uh, make up for a bad first half of the season. So why don't we throw it to to Judd here for Twins statements on this Tuesday. All right, my first Twins. And then I'll I'll get to that pecking order, Dex, here shortly. Got it. I know you popped that up on the screen there. Damn it, Being Johnny, Johnny on the spot producer. Oh, here we go. go weekend statements. Weekend statement. All right. It's the we, same thing. Yeah. Weekend statement. Uh, number one about the Twins. Nice rebound. All right. So the disaster in Cleveland, which was just a complete debacle. I mean, Pagan blowing up the bullpen. Absolutely getting lit up. Um, and, and a series that looked like it could have some long-term effects of how, how are they going to come back from that? Uh, they didn't hit the ball that well against Baltimore in the three-game series. But you know what? They came back in the first two games to walk the O's off, and that's a pretty good bullpen, too. And so they lost game three, but then as Phil just said, they also came back and won game one uh, at Chicago. I believe the Twins now have played four games against the White Sox in 2022 and have won all four. So that's a nice comeback. Like, this team can be weird, and, and as we talked about with Royce, it could certainly be frustrating from a decision standpoint at times. Um, but, you know, the one thing that I really see from the players, at least, that uh, takes me back to 2019, they're really resilient. 
Like they they don't get caught up and that that Cleveland thing could have just really scarred them. Like that could be like, oh, we can't trust anybody anymore in the bullpen. What the hell's going on? Um, it could have scarred them. It really didn't. And and I believe in the three games against the Orioles, they scored a total of eight runs. I think in innings one through six, they scored one run in three games. So like they didn't hit and still won two of three. So I like the fact that this team, especially to credit the players, has a resiliency about it where they don't get stuck on what might go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's been such a weird season with, I feel like, so many reasons to potentially melt down to this point, and they Mm -hmm. just haven't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the White Sox are coming in here. They see the Twins on their schedule, what, eight times or whatever, seven or eight times in the next two weeks, and they say, all right, this is our time now to make up ground. And uh, the twins, as you know, at least in that game yesterday, said, "No, actually, we're gonna we're gonna throw you further down that uh, American League Central ladder." So I think with the injuries to the White Sox and the the weird vibe with Tony Larusa, and the Guardians are feisty, but also I don't know that that roster is yeah. is made for 162 games. Yeah, I agree. I think the Twins, as of right now, even with their flaws, are just the best team in this division. They have a 75 percent chance to make the playoffs, according to Baseball Reference this morning. And if they add a couple pitchers to that bullpen and maybe a starter, that percentage probably only goes up in the next two or three months. The guards, if I'm not mistaken, guards. yesterday the guards. got okay, swept. Steve. The guards got swept by Detroit. Here comes Cleveland. In a double dip. So, yeah. I think the Guardians, it's one of those weird years where they seem to have the Twins, um, where they seem to beat the Twins consistently, but... I think the Twins are probably the best team in the Central. I think you're right. Dax? Uh, my statement is stop worrying about tomorrow and worry about today. And what I mean by that, and this also goes back to, honestly, to our Wolves statement, too. When we're when they were trying to figure out the Twins, when they were trying to figure out their bullpen plan yesterday, well, maybe we can do, we do Jacks for two, but if we burn Duran today, then he can't throw tomorrow. It's like, all right, what are we worried about Tuesday's and Wednesday's game? Right now, you're up 2-1. to one. You have a lead against a, your division rival. What are we worried about our relievers' plan for Tuesday and Wednesday when the game is in hand right now and you need to take it away and get the W? I'm not worried necessarily about winning Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm worried about winning today. That should be the first philosophy. And for whatever reason, we just complicate this with the pitching staff. And yes, Dylan Bundy's numbers go up when he faces the third time through the order. Every pitcher in baseball's numbers get worse when they face an order third time through, okay? So let Bundy even continue to go and monitor him. And if and if you want to use Jose Duran in that game, then use your best reliever. Don't worry about using him his tomorrow or Wednesday. Johan, Johan Duran, whatever the hell his name, whatever, whatever slappy so they want to use. You don't even care what his name that's is. Not like the, that's not named Duran. Don't call him a slappy. Brings My it. point is, is worry about the game today. Don't be worrying about what's going to happen in Tuesday Wednesday. If you have to throw Caleb Thielbar on Tuesday or Wednesday, that's fine. Worry about getting the win in, in the forefront. Not Don't worry about the next games. All right, I think this is a good opportunity since uh, since Declan brought his name up for my statement to be apologize to Dylan Bundy, Judd. I said last night on Twitter, Go I ahead. said, someone said, if he wins a playoff game, will you apologize? And I said, yes, 100%. 
because he has no you, chance. Mo- mo- they'll never let the him get post. through five. They'll never, they'll never allow him to get through. I think five. I'm pretty sure at some point you said June was kind of your your mark. Yeah, but, but then he I fell apart the for a while, and, and and now he's June come has back. Like two bad starts. I I don't know what. Uh, you know what? I'm still not. There he yet. has he has three train wreck starts that I would consider. So he had a okay at Tampa Bay in April. He gave up six earned runs in six innings, but he gave you six. He battled his tail off. Okay, We're going to count that as a train wreck. Thanks, Gardy. Yeah, and then we the next start he gave up he gave up nine earned runs in three and two thirds yeah. at Baltimore yeah. in the next start. That's guard me. And then he came back a couple nice starts. Uh, there's a six innings four runs. That's not a train wreck. That happens. And then there's a so then there was the five runs in two and a third against Toronto, and then kind of a bad start against the Yankees. So he's made fourteen starts. Four of them are pretty bad. Ten of them have been either really really good mm-hmm. or or give yourself a chance right, to I'll win take a, a game longer because look at it's this. the fifth or sixth. I'll, I'll take a longer look at this. But I mean, Rocco no, and I didn't, we're giving didn't you the long him. look right now. Yeah. We're giving you Rocco all the reasons. Rocco and I didn't to... even trust him last night. Okay. I mean, Rocco and then in these, in these like, last four games, in these last four games, two of them against on the road against division opponents that are chasing you, uh, 24 innings, he has a 1.88 earned run average, and opponents have a 543 OPS against him. Right, oh, what a reclamation project. What a <laughs> it is, dude. It's he's been he's been yeah, exactly what you hope this what a No, you don't project. know. You're I said what a reclamation project. No, I'm not. I am on board. Congratulations. Dylan Bundy. This is caked in sarcasm. Can you not? Can you? So you're saying if I would have told you at the beginning of the year, okay, he's going to have 14 starts through the uh, first three months of the season. Ten of them are going to be very good. Mm -hmm. His ERA is going to be a little inflated because of the nine earned runs he gave up against Baltimore. Yeah, uh, but but largely he's going to be yeah just a Anymore? just a really good number five. I, mean, I feel like that, I, that's not enough for you. I feel like I like my refusal <laughs> to apologize to Bundy is just fueling him. So if I apologize now, his season's going to come unglued. So it's very important that I continue to challenge him. Her Brooks like I'm challenging him again, okay. again. All right, I guess we'll have to we'll just, just, yeah, just keep wait. seeing it from, just wait. from old just, Dylan. I, I hope he continues to bring it. All right. My statement is, it's a pleasure to watch. And right now you're thinking, oh, he's going to talk about Buxton, because Buxton clearly is. But I'm not. I want to talk about the play, and forget what he does at the plate. I want to talk about the play of Carlos Correa at shortstop. Because, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, we are watching, and, and I have started to, I'm guilty already of taking it for granted. This guy is making plays that how many Twins shortstops in the last, I don't know, 15 years, take your pick, didn't make. Um, and he's making them look easy. He made the play that Kirloff made a nice play to get the tag, but before his foot came off the bag last night, um, I just sort of was like, oh, that's a nice play. I went back and watched it. It wasn't a nice play. It was an unbelievably outstanding play. Mm-hmm. He can throw without setting himself at all. Like he literally, and, and he throws it like he's throwing from second base and he's throwing it from shortstop. I just want us to stop and realize right now what a pleasure it is to watch a guy play a premium spot, a hard position where this team has had huge trouble finding guys and that he plays it like he does almost every single game. This is a this is a special year defensively, if nothing else, to get the chance to watch what a real all-star premium shortstop is. Uh, I hope the Twins understand this. I hope that, that you, you have 
this guy in his prime and Buxton in his prime, and they're both fairly healthy. Mm-hmm. That this is right now they're playing at like an 89 win pace. I believe like 88, 89 win pace, which is good enough to win this very mediocre division. But they've got some guys on the team that if you can just, if you can just give them a couple more pieces here and there, uh, you know, Kirloff's bat is going. But this just, it just feels like how often are you going to have this many top? How often are you going to have a shortstop of this caliber, yeah. a center fielder of this caliber, Jorge Polanco at second base? You know, it's just not. It's so hard to find a shortstop ever. Look at this franchise, like you said, going back to Christian Guzman had a couple great years, and basically since then it's just been a revolving door of Jason Bartlett's and Pedro Florimones and put Punto over there for five minutes, and mm-hmm. this might only be a one-season thing. I hope they take advantage of it. I hope they see the opportunity in front of them. Yes, we'll see. My statement is it's basically all wrapped up. So Luisa Rice is hitting... 348 this season, which is just absurd. Um, and doing it in old school ways, right? With basically not a lot of power, but still just finds ways to get extra base hits and and is just a treat, an awesome guy to watch. He right now is leading the AL with a 348 average. The next closest player in the American League batting average race is Rafael Devers of the Red Sox, who is hitting 327. He has a 20 point lead. On Rafael Devers. And now look, baseball swoons will happen, right? There'll be some regression, I'm sure, at some point maybe to Luisa Rises game. But you know what? The guy's played 318 games in his MLB career. And he's a career 321 hitter, man. Like, this guy just knows how to hit. He he has the batting average race essentially all sewn up. Uh, he, he, he is that old school player that really is kind of fun to, fun to watch because you don't see him anymore. And yeah, I think he's going to win the batting average race. I think it's a little early to say it's sewn up, so but I agree that he's the heavy favorite so to win the batting title. Right? Love watching what that does man the, play. What does the batting title race mean to you guys and to the greater public anymore? I feel like it was such a huge deal mm-hmm. for decades and decades in baseball, and now it's like, you know, can you even really name the batting title winners from the past ten years? Um, no, not really, not hmm. really. It means I don't some, want to minimize. I don't want to minimize. Right. I, just, I think we've well, minimized batting average so much that yeah, it's true. I but I think get, getting to watch Arise on a daily basis is so much fun, and you realize why. I think what it does is it helps you put into context that average is important because of his approach. So it's like if you watch his at bats, they he he's, for lack of a better term, a magician with a bat. Like that guy, his ability to basically foul balls off, keep it bats alive. Like, so that to me is where he's special because we are now in an era of where a lot of guys, you know, work on their swing plane, try and hit fly balls, home runs. Arise hits line drives, and he does it at the end of at bats that are just magnificent works of art. And like, I have fallen back in love more again with baseball this year because of watching him. Like, I'm reminded of what the wow. art is. I'm reminded of the art. Because, like, home runs are fine, right? But, like, when you're watching guys launch angle and swing planes, I, I don't, like, I get that that's its own art, but that doesn't excite me as much. Arise is like a great painter. And he's got this blank canvas. It's called the field. And he's spraying the ball around. He's keeping at bats alive. I just, I have such an appreciation for what he's done. 
I feel like your wife would be jealous of the way that you romanticize about batting average. She would say, I wish that my husband would talk about me and look at me in the way that he looks at Wade Baseball. Boggs from the early 1990s. Oh, Tony Gwynn? Are you telling Mark me that Grace. Gwynn Carew, Gwynn <laughs> Carew, they're magicians, my man. Magicians with the bat. That bat is a magic wand in their hands, and they have <laughs> control. Magic. They have control that the major- that the vast majority of people who even play their game don't have that control. Yeah. No, he is super fun to watch, and what makes his batting average, I guess, I'm, I'm again, I'm not going to say that it's a, it's a wrap with three months to go, but the fact that he doesn't really strike out, too, mm-hmm. he's going to have to get really unlucky. Either, he's either going to have to strike out a lot more to go into a huge swoon or just get really unlucky with batted balls not sneaking through the infield or something, you know, because he puts everything in play. He only strikes out 8% of his plate appearances, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Buxton's like 30%. Yep. No question. Kind of polar opposite uh, Uh hitters there. Buxton's more of a feast or famine guy. All right, my next statement is Duran is the filthiest reliever I have seen in 30-plus years watching Twins baseball. And I'm trying not to be overreactionary guy, but he is literally leading the major leagues in fastball velocity. Yeah. 100.5 miles per hour or something on his four-seam. Did you see some of the swings those guys were taking on his 90-mile-an-hour breaking pitches, too? They had no chance. It's ridiculous. And I agree with Royce, what he said on the Rap with Royce episode. Okay, when you're throwing 101 miles an hour and right. hitters aren't touching it, don't feel like you need to throw six breaking balls to the next guy. <laughs> right. Just, just keep throwing that 100 miles an hour. Which brings me to a segment within a segment here. I have a pecking order for you, inspired by... Our listener, uh, Spencer Crabb, sent me an email last night saying, Hey, what's up, Phil? After listening to Glenn Perkins on the broadcast and watching Duran, it made me think of a good pecking order. All-time Twins relievers in their prime. So not like body-of-work Twins relievers, but if you can, he said either one year or ten years, whatever. The tenure doesn't matter. Make a pecking order of the best Twins relievers at their peak. Okay. So I have for you guys. Mm-hmm. 10 Twins relievers and the specific window that I would, if I had to build a bullpen, these would be the 10 guys that I would lean on. Nice. Uh, three honorable mentions, 2002 J.C. Romero, it's a tough lefty. Pre-elbow surgery Pat Neshek oh, yeah. in 2006 was filthy. Yep. And uh, Game 163 Bobby Keppel, also an Bobby. honorable mention for his. Beginning <laughs> in the third, tightrope walking. Uh-huh. Okay, so tell me if you guys agree or disagree if I'm if I'm leaving anyone off here. Number 10, Taylor Rogers. Just like the, the basically the three best years oh, of okay. of Taylor Rogers, who I think is quietly one of the more dominant relievers in Twins history. Mm-hmm. Certainly left-handed relievers. Okay. Uh Joan Duran, or Duran, as I say in my Minnesota accent. I have him at number nine. Oh wow. This current version of Duran is one of the most unhittable guys we've seen in Twins history. I'm surprised. Now he's got to prove it in the playoffs at some point. Yeah. But... All right. Oh, you think he should be higher? Well, no. I thought because you, you're big on impact, like in short periods of time at at some points, and so I thought yeah, he'd well, be like three five months. or something. Anyway, yeah. If we see in the playoffs, I All think right. he could take a jump up. Fair enough. Okay, number eight, 2013 through 15, Glenn Perkins. That slider down and into yeah. right-handed batters. 
All-Star at least twice, if not three times, right? He closed that one, too. Here. Three consecutive. Yeah, Yeah, he closed out the game here. Mm Got to give some love to number seven here, mid-1960s Al Worthington. Oh, Oh, Al. A Royce favorite. Yeah. Big strikeout guy for the era, which there wasn't many strikeouts back in the day. Gotcha. And he was chucking like 90 innings per season, closing out games. Oh, that's unbelievable. Look at those, those guys. They just throw them out there. Hey, go out there and pitch the rest of the game. But it's the sixth. I don't care. Go out and pitch the rest of the game. That's fine. Go do it, Al. And then, so Al was the best reliever on some of the best Twins teams in history there in the mid to late 1960s. Okay. All right. Number six, late 80s Jeff Reardon. Yep. Like 87, 88. Yep. Close out the World Series. 88 was his best season. Mm hmm. Got the ground ball. Gaiety to Herbeck. And the Twins are world champions. There it is, Herb Carniel right there. Uh, okay, number five, early 2000s, Eddie Gordado. And I, I initially wasn't going to put him high on the list because I was like, God, he always walked the plank, didn't he? Wasn't he just kind of... Eddie? No, Eddie had a couple seasons where he was among the league leaders in strikeouts for relievers and was ERAs in the low twos and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Tons of saves. So everyday Eddie was... I think sometimes we remember him as a plank walker because that's what he was... At, in some portions, but he was pretty lights out for like two or three years there. Okay. Number four, asterisk on this guy, but that's okay. 2004, wandering cone. Just filthy. Oh, wow. Okay. 11 and a half strikeouts per nine. Ooh. He was one of the best setup guys in the major leagues. I feel like that's a little high. I feel like that's a little slightly high. I'm telling you, 2004, uh, steroid aided. Dex, what's the No out. way. Number four ahead of Weirden, and he gave up that just absolute moonshot. The, the Ruben Sierra thing hurts it. Don't get me wrong. I was there. <laughs> My little scarred. 11-year-old heart was, was crushed still in the moment. I think fourth is awfully high. Okay. No, uh, we, could, we could debate this. I could put Reardon above Wandering Cone. But Wandering Cone on some of the best teams in the major league. Twins were some of the best teams in the major leagues in the early 2000s. Yep. In 2004... He had 12 strikeouts per nine innings, which for that era was among the best rates in all of baseball. 106 strikeouts as a reliever yeah. that season. That's pretty good. And was, uh, was Joe Nathan's main setup guy that helped take the Twins to, you know, whatever it was. Okay. Division title number number three. So you want to move him down a couple pegs, that's fine. I like Reardon uh, I'm probably the top five. Yeah. Okay. Let's do this. We'll, we'll put Jeff Reardon up at four, and we'll put uh, Juan Rincon outside of the top five. All right. I feel better. I'm okay with that. I feel better. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Okay. You might hate this next one then, too. Uh, Number three is the eighth inning version of Latroy Hawkins. Let me explain. So he was garbage as a closer. Just like he he blew the the first round. I think he might have had some closing attempts later in his career. But he was was almost single-handedly responsible for blowing that lead in the second half of the season in 2001. Right. And then they said, "All right, let's um, let's move you into a different role here. Let's have you pitch in the seventh and eighth innings. By the way, in the middle of the steroid era, this is prime like Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and these guys. This is early two thousands baseball, and he comes out in two thousand two and puts up a two point one three earned run average, mm-hmm. striking out almost a batter per inning. The next season, two thousand three, middle of the steroid era." A 1.86 ERA for Latroy Hawkins. Just dominant, untouchable as a reliever in the 8th, 7th, 8th innings of 2002-2003. I'm offended again. 
I feel like Reardon should be above Hawk. Uh, <laughs> he was really good as that setup, man. I was watching that rain delay coverage, you know, I think it was on Saturday when, when they were delayed in yeah. Minneapolis. And, like, yep. and I love when, like, baseball networks, it has to, like, pivot to rain. Like, well, what are we going to do for an hour and a half? We, we can't talk about anything. Diamond Awards. So they were playing, uh, like, the 2002 team and stuff, and they were talking about how how damn good Latroy, J.C. Yeah. Romero, those guys were. I mean, he was pretty good, dude. Yeah, but I still think. Okay, I think you're. I feel like you're. I'm valuing. I'll hear you on on won a World Series too. That helps. But the season that Jeff Reardon won the World Series, he gave up 14 home runs in 63 appearances, had a four and a half ERA. So yes, playoff run, and I maybe I'm going too stat heavy here, but yep. um, And then you said he came back the next year and pitched better. Yeah, he was. 1988 was probably his best season for sure with the Twins. So. All right, and, and maybe because he did it in the ninth inning, it's more valuable than what Latroy Hawkins did in the eighth inning yep. in the early two thousands. Yep. So I could I could hear you on that. Okay. All right, number two, nineteen ninety one through nineteen ninety three, Rick Aguilera. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, he was great. Okay. And then number one, peak Joe Nathan. So whatever the the four years of yeah. of peak Joe Nathan here. They got. Joe in 2000, in the winter of 2003, is that right? I believe that is correct. Uh, before the 2003 season, okay. yes. Yeah. So well, if it was like January of 2003. Now, people are going to say with Joe Nathan, well, wait a second now. Joe Nathan never did it in the World Series like Rick Aguilera, and that is true. Mm-hmm. And Joe Nathan, I think, is remembered for giving up bombs to you know Yankees hitters. But if you look at his numbers and his regular season dominance... You know, playoffs were a little bit of a small sample size, but you know he didn't perform. His numbers are second in that era, basically to Mariana Rivera. Yeah, he was the second. So best to me, he's there. the he's the best peak reliever in Twins history. Right. Yeah, he, I mean, in the in the playoffs, he is terrible. I mean, he has an eight ERA and ten innings pitched. Came in ten different games. He, even with Texas and Detroit, he wasn't great either. But I mean, in the regular season, the guy was money. But he also like he was sweaty and twitchy. Like even though he was good, he, he never Very really nervous. still felt. Yeah. Great. Some closers are like that, man. It's true. Some closers, sweaty, twitchy, mm-hmm. nervous. I would love to be a closer. Oh, God, really? Yeah. It's one of the it, last I jobs I would want. I think it'd be fun. I, would, I don't know. Like, if I could just get God-given ability to be, like, good at baseball. Right. I certainly wasn't in my regular life. I would love to be a closer. Interesting. Just have some walkout music. Yeah. Like, hey, anytime I did MLB The Show, like, career, career to the show, road to the show mode is what it's called, I always picked <laughs> reliever because I just wanted to be the closer to close out the game. And then totally never would throw my controller if I blew the safe. <laughs> never, never, never happened. Through, uh, road never happened. Road yeah. to the show. Road to the show. Yeah. All right. So uh, there's the packing order. Judd, you seem awfully quiet on this packing order. Like you disagree with a lot of these things. Here. Uh, no, no. I disagreed with where you put Reardon. Um, the Latroy thing surprised me a bit just because he did indeed fail in closing. But then to your point was very good. As a setup man, I was actually thinking would I flip Aguilera and Nathan, but I mean, in their prime, if we're talking about regular season success, I think it's probably fair. Um, yeah, no, I was only, I was only, I guess, perplexed by where Reardon initially was. Beyond that, I think it's fair. I thought you would put Duran higher right now, but yeah, I mean, it's he's also it three months. months, so that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, on Taylor, how, how much thought did you have to him being higher than ten? Taylor Rogers, not not much. Okay, I don't know. Okay. I mean, 
mostly just because I was you know drinking on the Fourth of July yesterday and kind of threw this list Good together. For you. Well, that might be why I'm quiet. Myself, but if you allow so. me to put more thought into it, would I move him up above Al Worthington? Probably not. Glenn yep. Perkins, no. Perk yep. was more dominant than yep. Rogers, I think. Um, I think you guys are underestimating steroid wandering cone here. If you want to move him down because of the steroids, no love. We can have that conversation. No love, or even honorable mention for Jesse Crane. Jesse Crane, Crane was not a dominant Twins reliever. He was not. <laughs> if you go back and look at Jesse Crane, he was like the third or fourth guy in those bullpens for the most part. He finally kind of clicked Crane. at the very end of his Twins yeah. career, but it was too late by then. They just bounced the Crane around and train. The Crane train found his stuff, right? His best season of his career was the last year he was in the Bigs, and then just kind of really? walked away. Yeah, he was. He had a major, super he had a major, good with the White Sox. Major injury issues. Yeah. I think he had maybe like shoulder surgery okay. that went. Sideways. He allowed three so. runs all season with the White Sox Jeez. in 2013 and then never pitched yeah. again. Solid was, list, though. It's a solid, solid list. Wrap. It's a very all solid right, list. There it is. I'm not. Here's your packing order. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Good. I feel like we're getting a lot of insincere judge. No, it's yeah. no. I, I feel like the entire list. show has been insincere no, judge. Like, yes, I like this list. This list is fine. I told you I had <laughs> one problem. You know what? Sometimes, sometimes I look at a list and say this list is pretty good, and then I don't try and like change things about it. All right. Very sincere Judd right here. Tomorrow's where insincere Judd admits that he was wrong on write that down and an accountability session. Real quick, why don't you tell the audience where insincere Judd loses weight, too? That that would, would be, of course, with my friends at Livia Weight Control Centers. And uh, look, you know what? I want to talk about teamwork right now because Dawn has joined me in the weight loss journey. She's down five plus pounds um, and she's right now continues to drop the weight. I've dropped 40 some odd pounds. Uh, and I am maintaining my weight loss. And right now, here's the offer where I can tell you, you can join the same plan because teamwork works. The Simple Start Plan, only $59, 855-GO-L-I-V-E-A, Livia.com, L-I-V-E-A.com, inside or outside the state. You can sign up, you can drop the weight, and then, as I just said, most importantly, because this is the hardest thing, keep the weight off, Livia, L-I-V-E-A.com. Awesome. All right, Mackie and Judd, daily Rudy Gobert entertainment here, and uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow for a Write That Down Wednesday.